Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. What a crazy, fun week this has been. Uh, I've never done a book tour until now, uh, which makes sense because I've never had a book until now. It would be weird to do one otherwise. But my book, Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage, came out on Tuesday. And it's been really cool to see all the people who are posting pictures on social media of them with the book and telling me which parts of the book meant the most to them and what was their favorite. I appreciate that a lot. Uh, If you're still on the fence about whether or not you're going to read it, two things I want you to know. One, we put out a special episode of this podcast earlier this week where John Lovett uh, actually interviewed me about writing the book and about the book. But it also includes my reading an excerpt from the book. So you can listen to that and decide, and I hope it wins you over. And then the second thing I wanted you to know is that today, Friday, uh, and tomorrow, Saturday, are the last chances that you have to buy a book and at the same time support the fight against gun violence. Because right now, for every copy of Outside the Wire that's sold, Diana and I are making a contribution to Moms Demand Action and to Every Town for Gun Safety. So if you want to be a part of that, open your browser... I'm sure you're listening to this on your phone, so just open it up on your phone and go buy a copy of Outside the Wire. All right, let's talk about today's guest. One of the best parts of doing this podcast is getting to highlight friends of mine who are doing big things or have big ideas or both. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick has a history of public service, and now he's continuing it, but from the private sector. One of my favorite parts of the discussion that you're about to hear is when Deval talks about not believing the private sector, the business world, should get a pass from having to make the world a better place. He's a deeply thoughtful guy, and he's really made me think differently about what expectations we should put on the business community in America. I mean, yes, as progressives, we think big business should pay its fair share of taxes and should treat workers fairly. But Deval doesn't stop there. He's saying there's no reason companies can't also seek to make the world a better place too. This is something that I've been talking about a lot in my campaign for mayor here in Kansas City, because I want to make sure that the progress in KC is felt by everyone, employers and residents alike. So Deval's decision after his time as governor to grab an oar in the private sector and do real good in the world through social impact investing is worth digging into and having a conversation about. If you don't know the term social impact investing, it's basically when investors try to get a positive societal return and a positive financial return at the same time. Deval grew up on the south side of Chicago, and prior to becoming the governor of Massachusetts, He was a civil rights lawyer with the NAACP and then later led the civil rights division at the Department of Justice during the Clinton administration. But he also, along the way, held senior positions at Fortune 500 companies. 
Now he's managing the single largest social impact investment portfolio in history. And he's demonstrating that you can do well for your investors while doing good in the world. Here is my conversation with my friend, Deval Patrick, about reinvesting in America. My name is Deval Patrick, and I grew up, uh, Jason, as you know, on the south side of Chicago in the, in the 50s and 60s, which sounds like the dark ages, probably to you and a lot of your, a lot of your uh, listeners. Um, a lot of that time on welfare, lived with my uh, mother and sister and grandparents in my, uh, in my grandparents' two-bedroom tenement with various other relatives who came and went. Uh, my mother and sister and I shared one of those two bedrooms and a set of bunk beds. So we'd rotate from the top bunk to the bottom bunk to the floor every third night on the floor. I went to, you know, big, broken, overcrowded, under-resourced, sometimes violent public schools. Um, I got a break when I was 14 uh, through a scholarship, through a program called A Better Chance to go to a boarding school outside of Boston, which for me was like landing on a different planet. And I have been in and around Boston off and on ever since then. Um, went to college and law school here. Uh, and except for some time living in Africa and in New York and in California uh, and working in Georgia and uh, again in New York, um, uh, I have been here in Massachusetts and um, uh, served for two terms as governor of Massachusetts. And now uh, in the last three plus years, uh, founded and uh, lead an impact investing fund at Bain Capital in Boston. So speaking of going to school in Boston, you, you went from the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau uh, to the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. And all that was before you were even in your early 30s. And so with what's going on in the world right now and thinking back to those experiences, what's the lens through which you watch the events in America right now? Like how far have we come uh, and, and, it, and really in the same way, how similar are things to the things that you had to fight for then? Well, that's a huge question. And I, I think in some ways um, we have never really, Jason, figured out how to talk about um, our progress um, and our lack of progress in this country in the sense that we, we haven't quite figured out how to strike the balance between the extraordinary progress we have made in this country around race and other uh, uh, civil rights struggle, struggles, much of that in my lifetime, by the way. Um, at the same time, we acknowledge how much work remains to be done. So when I was born, um, you know, it was still illegal for black and white people to marry, um, uh, to live in some of the same neighborhoods, to drink from the same water fountains, to go to the same schools in many parts of the uh, uh, country, let alone people of the same uh, uh, gender. Um, we've made extraordinary steps in, uh, in race relations, in gender relations, in LGBTQ relations, in the issues um, that face people with disabilities, uh, for example. Um, but it is still true that we have big, big challenges ahead of us. And, and it is still true that in the courts, we're fighting uh, some of the same struggles. And in some cases, um, dealing with judges who are being appointed today who think that some of those 
gains, legislative and judicial, should be undone. So you look at, for example, a, uh, a Supreme Court that has acted to, uh, to uh, uh, undo parts of the Voting Rights Act on the claim that discrimination is in decline when evidence of discrimination on the rise is all around us. So that should, uh, uh, should concern us, but it should also not blind us to the notion that we have as a nation uh, and as a culture at the same time made extraordinary progress and people uh, have learned um, across all kinds of differences uh, to love uh, and to care. And that, I think, has to be acknowledged uh, as well. Yeah, it is sort of frustrating how it feels like oftentimes on these issues, the argument that we're having in the country is one of it's it's artificially are things better or not, and and that's mm-hmm. that's not that's not the conversation we should be having. It, it's it it is more of a conversation of hey, uh, the civil rights movement uh, is continuing, and we we can appreciate how far we've come while acknowledging there's more to do. And you know, one example of that, I suppose, is to how. We can look into the past at successes, but still see that there that there are more successes uh, to be had. Is you, know, you? I think when you were at the Justice Department, didn't you square off with Jeff Sessions in a case? <laughs> Actually, that was before the Justice Department. We yeah. we uh, when I was at the Legal Defense Fund, um, I was uh, a part of a defense team in a criminal case where uh, Jeff Sessions, then the U.S. Attorney in Alabama. Uh, had uh, indicted three, at that time, old. Um, I thought they were old. I think, in fact, they were younger than I am now, Jason. <laughs> uh, but they had been involved, um, you know, from their youth in organizing voters, black voters in the Black Belt in uh, uh, in Alabama. They had been part of organizing the Selma to Montgomery March alongside, uh, alongside Dr. King. And part of that uh, growing... Uh, black political sophistication was understanding how to use absentee ballots because an awful lot of the people they were serving were people who worked in the fields or who worked in uh, the kinds of jobs that didn't allow them to get back in time to register or to vote when the uh, during the very limited times that county clerks made uh, made the polling places accessible. So they understood and came to um, uh, understand how to use absentee uh, absentee ballots, and in a majority minority or majority African-American community, they began to gain political power by understanding that among other tools. And as that political power uh, began to grow, U.S. Attorney, then U.S. Attorney Sessions, decided there must be something wrong with that and, uh, and indicted them. And uh, it, what was so interesting is that, you know, many of the witnesses in that case, Jason, were people who remembered um, what it was like to feel the uh, intimidation of federal and state law enforcement. And they kind of reverted to those behaviors, if you will, of cowing. Um, and part of the work of, uh, of the defense team in trying to understand the evidence and get the whole story was, uh, was trying to get people just to tell us what they knew, just to talk to us. Um, and uh, And it was real work, you know, because we were driving around these dirt roads in the uh, after hours and in the dark, frequently tailed by, uh, by FBI agents. Um, and, uh, and folks were scared. Um, 
And, uh, uh, and eventually, after many weeks of preparation and many weeks of a trial during which, you know, the KKK burned down the home of one of the defendants and there was all kinds of witness intimidation uh, and all kinds of shenanigans at the, uh, at the trial, uh, which I won't get into, um, we, uh, uh, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty on all counts um, and the uh, defendants were free to go, which was the right outcome. Well, I'm glad. And, and, uh, and it just sort of brings me to, to think about you in, in this context, which is there are, there are politicians who, who come from a public interest background, which obviously, you know, Harvard Legal Aid Bureau to NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund to doing civil rights work at the DOJ. Like that is the definition of a public interest background. And then sometimes there are politicians who their sort of theory of the case, uh, when they have uh, you know run for office or, or served, has been their success in business. There are very few people who have lived both of those lives, and you have. And so that makes me look at your time as governor and wonder, you know, how you feel like that experience fighting for civil rights, you know, in public service, working for the public interest, and then that experience in the private sector how they mixed together and formed the way that you made decisions when you were the governor? Well, first of all, I'd say I've never, I've never taken a job where I've felt that I had to, or where I was willing to leave my conscience at the door. And I I think, you know, when I was in private practice on the, you know, in the, in the two large firms where I, where I worked, I also did pro bono uh, civil rights work. When I went into the first company I worked for, which was Texaco, it was really through a uh, an employment discrimination channel because I first served, I first got acquainted with Texaco serving as the special master, if you will, the chair of a task force that had been appointed by a federal judge to oversee the settlement of an employment discrimination case that Texaco was involved in. And over a few years of doing that work, I came to know the CEO and the uh, executive management and then was asked by this, that CEO to come in as uh, general counsel and with the blessing of the court and the members of, the, uh, of that uh, task force, I did come in. Um, and I found there um, uh, a team of executives and, uh, and others in the, in the company who were uh, the very people I had come to know on the task force who were trying to do the right thing and trying to move the company into uh, uh, into the uh, uh, the 20th century, frankly, and then get ready for the 21st. And in fact, while we were while we were there, Texaco was the first uh, so-called big oil big oil company to leave the consortium that um, was funding the uh, you know the the so-called science opposed to climate change. Um, didn't get a lot of Notice at the time, because very shortly thereafter, Texaco was, uh, was merged um, into another uh, company and in that name went away. I joined uh, the Coca-Cola company shortly um, thereafter, which was going through similar kinds of challenges, but again, dealt with many uh, high-minded, uh, well-intended uh, people who understood that, uh, that the company's long-term interests dependent not just on doing well, but also doing good. And, you know, more and more, I think that the best business leaders get that connection that, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm a capitalist too. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the sort of, I'm not a market fundamentalist, Jason, meaning I I don't think uh, markets solve every problem in everybody's life or do so just in time. 
But I believe in opportunity, and I think that requires that we have to have a functioning um, economy that is growing out, not just up, meaning out, so that people on the margins of the economy have a chance uh, to uh, have a chance to develop themselves and their families and their in their communities, and not just people at the at the top to uh, to grow their own to grow their own wealth. And I think that means you have to understand how business um, works and how to get it to work in ways that contribute to that outward growth. So that brings us really to the double impact fund. Uh, it y- does. Yeah. Y- you, you have $390 million at your disposal and, and you're supposed to um, you know, make the world a better place while also turning a profit. And <laughs> th- there are people out there who have sometimes felt that those two things don't always go together. Um, Mm. honestly, I think one of them is the president of the United States right now, but we don't need to go down that road. Let's talk about what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're determined to, uh, to prove that wrong, to demonstrate you can do good things and turn a profit. Tell us sort of what the plan is here, how that, how that works. Well, so first of all, this is a, this is not a new concept. It's a, uh, it's a concept. Impact, impact investing is an industry fairly mature in Europe. It's been coming on strong in the United States over the last several years. Uh, It's something I learned about uh, initially through social impact bonds, which is a concept I was introduced to um, while still in office as governor of Massachusetts. Uh, And I can, I can tell you more about that if you like. Yeah, Um, yeah, please. So the, the great thing about social impact bonds is that you bring in private capital to, to try new things. And if they work, you have a proof point you know, the bond payers get paid by the savings. You have a proof point that you can then show to a legislature and say, see, this saves the taxpayers money. Let's scale this. Let's do this instead of what we've been doing. Sometimes these are called pay for performance contracts. They don't always um, work or in every setting, but we did two of the first, or I should say two and a half. The half was continued by the current um, uh, uh, governor. Um uh, before I left uh, office, two of the uh, two and a half of the first in the in the country. It's early days, but I think they've been going um, pretty well. One has to do with uh, um, individual chronic homelessness. Um, one to do with uh, with high risk youth recidivism. Uh, one uh, to do with uh, actually the one on homelessness was. Um, uh, has some early results that are incredibly encouraging. I I I, I don't want to. I don't want to jinx it. it. I don't want to jinx it, but it feels like uh, that that we're going to see something on the order of a 50% reduction in chronic individual homelessness, which is just, just a beautiful outcome. I think the one on the, uh, on reducing uh, recidivism among high risk youth is, uh, is tougher. And that's a measurement issue and they're complicated, complicated reasons. But again, right. You want to try things. Mm-hmm. It enables a laboratory to try some uh, some new things without putting the public's money at uh, at risk and see what works. It's it's a long termism as opposed to a short termism in a way. Exactly, exactly. And innovation is good, right? Mm-hmm. It's just let's let's try a different way instead of just bringing the new idea in and putting it in on top of the old thing. Uh, and what we have in many states, and I'll bet you'll see this even. In uh, in Kansas City, should the people of Kansas City be graced by your election uh, to the mayor <laughs> position, you. is that you have, you know, stacks and stacks of programs trying to get at the same thing, every line item having its own constituency, but no real comprehensive 
new direction in how you get at uh, a social problem in a more efficient and, and successful and accountable way. And I think the public is crying out for those kinds of, um, uh, those kinds of approaches. If you ever shower or brush your teeth, <laughs> that'd be funny if that was all this was, <laughs> or try to make your hair look presentable. Check. Yeah, okay, good. Then, then that's good. First of all, good. I've got good news for you, if that's the case. Dollar Shave Club has a lot of stuff to help you out. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. I was thinking about this ad, and I was thinking about how the original Queer Eye, how they had uh, this part where they said, like, straight guys tend to shave so quickly that they cut themselves. And when I watched that years ago, it changed my life because I, I quit shaving so fast in the mornings and I quit cutting myself all the time. It's pretty impressive. You haven't had a cut in a, in, in a long time. And I remember very distinctly the point at which you watched that episode. It was big. It was a big deal in my life. Now, have you told anybody that the Queer Eye offices in Kansas City, where they're filming season two, are literally 10 feet away from your offices in Kansas City? I'm pretty sure you just told everyone. <laughs> that's, that's fine. It's pretty cool. It is. It's We are the only two offices on that floor. For those who don't know, uh, the new Queer Eye uh, is actually shooting in Kansas City. It's set in Kansas City right now. And it, we are the only two things on that floor, and they are having a great time over there. They are plotting all the time. You are so close to looking, feeling, and smelling even better. Well, I mean, I have Dollar Shave Club, which is good. <laughs> uh, if you can't get on Queer Eye this season, then Dollar Shave Club, yes, that Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. You name it, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, and hair gel. All of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top shelf ingredients that won't break your budget. You'll feel the difference. Plus, shipping is included with your membership. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just five bucks, you can get their daily essential starter set. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, their amazing fourth point of contact wipes, uh, their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need for the bathroom. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash 54. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash 54. As I was leaving office, there weren't many impact investing funds in the United States, um, and there were none in Boston. Um and uh, so I was on my way to do something else because my wife and I wanted to stay in Boston. And I had a couple of friends uh, who were senior partners at, uh, at Bain Capital who had said, you know, when you are ready and you know what you want to do, let us be sounding boards. Um, and I went to talk to them about some of the other things I was interested in. <laughs> One of them uh, said to me uh, about, you know, this other idea. He said, that sounds really interesting, but what are you really passionate about? And I said to him, well, you know, there is this thing called impact investing that I've been learning about. And his eyes widened and his mouth opened. And he said, I can't believe you mentioned that. And I said, why? And he said, because we've been trying to figure out how to get into that space for a long time. Hmm. And I said, what? And he said, yeah. He said, our investors from Europe have been, have been asking about, about it. He said, why don't you come in and help us figure it out? So uh, I did. We set out to raise $250 million, which to me, Jason, is a lot of money. I will say at Bank Capital, it's quaint. Um, you know, it's a charming, charming little fund. Um, it, it's we, a lot of money uh, to me, too. Yeah. We exceeded our, uh, 
exceeded our goal considerably and and could have kept going, but we stopped because we were determined to start small and scale. And um, and there's a particular size uh, uh, company or part of the market that we're trying to uh, that we're trying to target. So let, let's get into the details here and, and let yeah. people understand exactly what we're talking about. I remember um, when, I think it's the last time you and I were together, we had uh, lunch, uh, we had barbecue in Kansas City, and you were telling me about some of these good. projects. Yeah. Um, and you you were excited about it and, it, and it got me excited about it. I remember a, a Texas composting company, and I remember right. a, a gym franchise. Uh, mm-hmm. So... You know, if those are still some of your uh, favorites to talk about, let's talk about those. But it sounds like there's sure. others. Yeah. So we bought a company, uh, invested in a company in Texas called Living Earth, which diverts green waste that would otherwise go into into landfills and break down into um, uh, greenhouse gases, which is not good. Uh, and instead, um, uh, uh, recycles it and uh, and sells it back as composted uh, soil and uh, and uh, uh, and ground cover. Um, it's a company that uh, you know by its nature is inherently impactful. The more it does, the more greenhouse gas uh, is avoided. That's a measurable thing. It's been in business for some time. It's very profitable. Um, we invested to help it scale its business both in Texas and across the southeast. Um, we invested in a in a series of low cost gyms. We talked about this as well in uh, in Michigan and northern Indiana that have targeted uh, what they describe as fitness deserts, um, meaning places of high incidences of uh, obesity, type two diabetes. It turns out that the that the economics of gyms is to charge as much as possible and hope nobody comes. Um, and this is the inverse of that. It's the charge. Um, um, I think it's 10 bucks a month. Um, and our, our job is to drive utilization. Um, and eventually we'll be measuring, you know, the number of times a week that people are getting their heart rates up and so forth, sharing that with, uh, with their, uh, health insurance, um, companies to try to drive, uh, uh, rates down, premiums down and so forth. So, um, those are a couple of examples, and you know, all with uh, with measurable outcomes. We can we can uh, we get a baseline on each of these companies, uh, financial and impact, and uh, and then we can measure their progress over time and report that to our investors. Those are a few examples. It's interesting because we're in a time right now where uh, the folks in charge of the government are not prioritizing uh, these. You know, they're not prioritizing the idea of let's try and get healthcare costs down. Let's try and actually make it so that people who don't have an opportunity to be healthier, that they they do have that opportunity. They're certainly not concerned uh, about climate. They're not doing anything in the right direction on education, particularly higher education. And and it feels like oftentimes I talk with people who are really, they're, they're trying to step in uh, to that gap and, and fill that gap. And, and more often than not, that takes place in in a nonprofit sector, and and it's it's interesting because it's not a question of whether it's better in in which sector, but it certainly is the case. I think that when you can figure out how to solve for these problems in a way that that can actually be lucrative on the on on the private sector side, that seems to me to be something that would be much more scalable. Would be something you can grow much faster. Is that, I, I would assume that's part of the thinking here. I don't want to be heard as saying that I think um, 
you know, business comes in or impact investing comes in and says to every other sector, we'll take it from here. <laughs> I, I just want to, mm. I just think, you know, having served in, in those other capacities um, and, uh, and felt for some time that those other sectors were letting business off the hook, as it were, that the good thing is that more and more people um, are seeing that we need everybody on the field um, because the scale of our challenges um, as a country uh, and as a people are, are such that we just, we just need all contributors to do what they can to do what's right. I think that's perfectly put. And in fact, you know, the way I sort of asked that question, sort of, I I was sort of falling into the the trap that that happens in the in the short termism or in the in the way that things uh, seem to go in our in our political conversation in the country right now is this sort of sense of a zero sum game. It's either this side or it's this side, and and I think actually what you're saying is very much with a huge theme that we have on the show, which is you know I refer to as grab and or. It's really the idea of it's not one or the other. It's every single person in every single role, every entity has a responsibility to try and do all the good they can. And you're, right. and you're saying business has not been, ex- you know, you're, you're trying to raise the expectation. Right, right. And I, I think, you know, we, we <laughs> I, you know, I don't mean to sound too grand uh, here, but, um, you know, we're, we're, we're all of us here for just a, a very short time. And, um, you know, as you say, um, I think it is it is incumbent on every one of us to think about that, um, and uh, uh, and to and to consider why we are here, and to do all the good we can in the uh, in the in the time we have. Um, and it, you know, I I, th- I think it's. Uh, you know, you asked you asked earlier about um, my having um, my having worked in in government or in the not for profit sector or in or in, uh, or in business. I, I think there are lots of different ways to serve, um, and um, and I have tried uh, to be uh, a person of integrity and to and to make uh, decisions and choices with integrity in each of those, uh, settings. And because i I feel that that is possible. Um, I, I don't have a lot of patience with, uh, with those who tell me from those sectors that it's, um, that it's just too hard. Um, and we, and you have to leave this or that sector out of it. Uh, you know, and frankly, as I said earlier, the challenges that face us, um, don't really allow for that, um, anymore if they ever did. Yeah, it's it's sort of it's interesting how people can allow um, they, people can kind of define their personal identity sometimes around things that um, either let them off the hook or don't. You know, like for me, uh, I I know when I came home from Afghanistan, I was suddenly approaching my job as an attorney much differently because it had gone for me from you know when I looked in the mirror in the morning, maybe before I left, I saw. Uh, to some extent, a lawyer who did soldier stuff one week in a month. And I think maybe I came home and I saw a soldier who just 28 days out of the month happened to go to a job as a lawyer. And it, and it, mm-hmm. and so, you know, when I think back knowing you as I do, I, I think back to 
not just the way you were brought up, although that's, I would imagine, a big part of it as it is for all of us, but also the choices you've made. I think that's an important point is to say it is not a question of whose role it is to do these things. It's just an understanding that it's everybody's role. And it doesn't really matter, you know, what you do from nine to five, you can make an impact on the world. Well, you do. You do. Yeah. You know, I <laughs> I think I told you this um, this story about an experience I had when I was 15 years old. I was home on a school vacation and uh, uh, home from uh, from boarding school. Uh, <laughs> and I was late to meet a friend. And I went uh, hauling down the uh, down the street um, to catch a, a bus. And uh, I got to the bus stop just when the uh, when the bus came rolling up and I, and I jumped on board and the door closed behind me and I'm standing there at the coin box. And I realized, um, when, uh, when I was standing there, um, that I didn't have enough money for the fare. And, uh, the driver looked at me standing there looking ridiculous. And he pointed to the seat closest to the door and he says, sit down, son. And I knew I was going to get it, you know? Um, and I, sat down and I, you know, started sputtering. And I said, sir, I'm so sorry. I've been away. I was in a hurry. I didn't realize the fare had changed and I didn't have enough money and all that. And, and he turned and he looked, he turned from the road. He looked at me, you know, this great old grizzled, um, bearded, uh, uh, black guy. And he, 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 uh, he looked me up and down, um, and he sized me up, um, in an instant, the way people who serve the public can do. And, uh, and he looked back at the road and his expression softened and he said, just pass it on, son, just pass it on. And it was just a tiny, tiny act of grace. I don't know who that man was. I don't know what his name was, but that little act of grace was, believe it or not for me, life-changing, right? It was a lesson I took. Um, and I have been trying to internalize for the, you know, decades since. Every one of us has those opportunities multiple times a day. You know, the, the, when, you, when you hold the door for somebody rather than rush through, uh, when somebody ha- has their hands uh, uh, full, that has, or, or when you rush through and you don't hold the door, that has some impact you don't realize on somebody's day or somebody's hour, you know, it may not be life changing, but it has some, some impact. Um, when you, you know, some, when you scowl, <laughs> I mean, they're tiny things is what I'm trying to say, Jason, um, that sometimes have a, uh, have an outsized impact on somebody else you don't know, um, and may never ever, uh, encounter. And so when you're trying to be intentional about it, imagine what kind of, uh, impact it may, it may have. Imagine when you say, to uh, your colleague at work, you know, the thing you just said um, uh, in this, in this workplace uh, environment actually may um, have been off-putting um, to our, our colleague over there. And she didn't say any, she, she didn't say anything, but I could tell by her expression um, it, uh, it did. And, and maybe that's not the tone we're trying to, we're trying to set here. Um, I'm not saying you have to try to be a hero or a jerk. Um, or, uh, you know, holier than thou in every, every setting. But just, I think particularly at a time when a lack of decorum has become entertainment, 
just feels to me like trying to bring your better self um, into your into your work and into your daily uh, uh, interactions. Sometimes those small things um, leave a leave a a wider wake than you think. I can see how that was a defining moment of you because I see the way that you are without being like without being somebody who uh, who makes things uncomfortable in any way. You employ that. Like I'm thinking right now as you tell that story about like two weeks ago or so, you and I were texting and I casually, as, as sometimes... <laughs> Jason, you, you're, no, 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 it's okay. It, it, it's actually interesting because like I, I casually dropped like, you know, an, an F-bomb in conversation in, but not in like a, just in like, you know, just the way I talked as a millennial. And you, instead of being like, okay, well, he does that and I don't, you said like, hey, you know, you probably didn't need that there. And I have thought about that. And I remember being like, well, you know, he's right. And I have thought about that a lot, like over the last few weeks. And I think it has in a positive way affected the conversations that I've had with people. And and so it's interesting as you tell that story, I think about you are in a way without being self-righteous, without being um, preachy. Like, I think you take very seriously kind of being, for lack of a better term, like on duty in terms of serving others, which I appreciate. Well, that's very kind of you to say. You had, uh, you had some, you had something sharper to say at the time <laughs> and funnier. <laughs> well, well, okay. Uh, it actually, it, it, one of my favorite things that I've read that you've said it, on the subject of, of being welcoming to others and finding middle grounds is you said that the woke need to make room for the still waking. It, mm. ex, explain what that means and, and what we can all take from that. So that's not my line. Um, that's a line that I heard in a speech at the, inaugural summit hosted by the Obama uh, Foundation uh, last fall. And in the course of that speech, the, um, uh, the speaker was talking about the marvelous broad engagement of people um, in the wake of the 2016 election, in part in response to the outcome of the election, but I think more to the point, in response to the to the darkness unleashed by the rhetoric of that election and by, frankly, the rhetoric um, uh, since then and some of the policy choices up to and including what's been going on at the southern border. And uh, I think he was cautioning that, or at least as I heard it and, and, and experienced, experienced it, he was cautioning that the, those of us who feel outraged by so much of that shouldn't let our our um our our outrage turn into self-righteousness that leaves behind people who who haven't gotten to that level yet you know that, that I'm not talking about the haters who will never get there and I don't think he was talking about the haters who will never get there but the people who are worried about um you know Pick the issue. Um, let's 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 talk about the southern border. Um, it's hard to imagine anybody being not being out, outraged by um, children being ripped away from their from their parents, especially for the reasons. Uh, well, for any reason. Let me period. But then, when you hear that the reasons are to intimidate parents who are thinking about 
crossing the border uh, seeking asylum, that the, that the children are used as pawns, it's even more revolting. Um, and I, but, you know, there are still people who have reasonable anxiety about, uh, about uh, uh, illegal immigration. And I think that would be a case where, you know, the folks who are outraged, and I am one of them, should not, should be outraged, but still leave room for folks who are worried, and I would be one of them too, about how we have secure borders and we fix a broken immigration uh, system so that you can still problem solve with people who haven't all, haven't dialed up their emotion to the same level you have. That's, that's what I was hearing. And I think if that's what he was saying, that's an enormously important point for, uh, 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 for, for, uh, for the woke. I, I think at the heart of that is empathy, which when I think about what you did as governor, when I think about the Obama presidency, one of the first words that comes to mind for me is empathy. The ability to say, I feel like I see this clearly. This person doesn't see it as clearly as I do. I can't hammer them, you know, over the head to get to my position necessarily. Some people you can, but most you can't. I need to understand where they're starting from so I can help them get to where I am. Is that fair? I think I think that's a big part of it. I think the other part of it is humility. You know, no, I don't think any person or any party has a corner on all the best ideas. And I think we got to be in a place where we where we 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 don't where we feel we don't have to agree on everything before we work together on anything. Um, and the sad um, the sad truth is that the other party, led by a loud minority, has has uh, has uh, and namely the Tea Party has brought us there. And that's a that's a that's a dangerous place for a democracy to be. It's a dysfunctional um, place to be sure, but it's also a dangerous place. Well, humility is not a word that you hear in politics very much. And it's kind of refreshing. I mean, particularly anymore. And it's just kind of refreshing to hear somebody invoke it. Well, maybe that's why I'm not in politics much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing fine. So to sort of wrap up, a big thrust of our show is talking about how people use their platform, no matter how big or how small, from, from grade school students up to Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, and, the, and the former governor of Massachusetts. So, so what advice do you have that, that anybody listening can put into practice today in terms of you know, just making their community or, or this country a better place, whether it's at their day job or after work or on the weekend? Well, you said it earlier. I love that, I love that term, do all the, all the good you can. Um, you know, it's much, much of what we can do and, and must do is, is small things, uh, the, those small acts of, uh, of grace. Um, and, and they are done uh, anonymously and without, um, without a platform, without a, without a microphone. Um, but, uh, you know, to do them in the precincts where they are unexpected, you know, to do them, you talked about earlier the, the investor who says, you know, there are lanes for different things, you know, to do them in the lanes where they're unexpected, to do them um, in your workplace with your with your um, gym buddies or your drinking buddies or, or, or what have you, 
to do them at the Thanksgiving table when you when everybody is arguing about the stuff that you're not supposed to talk about. Um, they can it it can have a uh, a ripple effect, um, and that's you know that's a that's a lesson I'm trying to bring into my own life, and I've been trying to bring into my own life for a long time now, uh, and I'm. I feel encouraged that I'm seeing more and more of that the more I look around. Well, I, I really appreciate the impact that you're having on everybody else, and I appreciate you doing this show. Thanks, Deval. You're a good man, Jason. Thank you. All the best to you. A huge Team Candor thank you to Deval Patrick. He's out there trying to make a better America for all of us, and I'm glad people are literally invested in what he's doing. I think it's just cool that we finally had an episode where we talked about business and, of course, how it could help society and everybody. But I've been waiting for this episode for two seasons. Well, I mean, this it was, just, it was like a crossover episode. <laughs> Your world and my world. I love it. it and like, Deval was, <laughs> he was so good. Yeah, it was like when Alf and Gilligan's Island were together, <laughs> which I think actually happened, by the way. You can follow along with Deval's work on Twitter at Deval Patrick. Oh, and there's one more thing that I wanted to mention on the show today. As you know, I run a voting rights organization. It's called Let America Vote. And we're active in five states this year. We're supporting voting rights champions and we're creating political consequences for vote suppressors. And we have had incredible success this year. We're back in 73 candidates across the country. uh, And our 145 summer interns have already knocked more than 175,000 doors. And they're making the real face-to-face contacts with voters that'll make a difference in November. But here's the thing. It's August now. And those summer interns are heading back to school or off to work or onto other endeavors. And that means we need new interns for the fall. And that's where you come in. You can apply today to be an intern this fall at Let America Vote. Uh, and if, if you're not somebody who's interested in being an intern, please tell somebody you know who this would work for. So here on Majority 54, we're always talking about grabbing an oar, using your platform to make a difference. An internship with Let America Vote is a great opportunity to do that. You can come out to one of our five states, New Hampshire, Georgia, Tennessee, Iowa, or Nevada, and you'll spend the fall helping to build up that blue wave. It doesn't matter where you live. We can help you relocate. We can set you up with housing, or we can plug you into our distributed organizing program if you can't relocate. Our summer interns have done incredible work, and we got to keep it going all the way to Election Day. And we can with your help. You can make a difference, learn how politics, campaigns, and democracy work, and have a ton of fun along the way. Look, basically, this is your opportunity to be a part of the civil rights movement, and I hope you take advantage of it. You can go to letamericavote.org slash intern to apply. That's letamericavote.org slash intern. Please do this. Thanks for listening to Majority 54. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.